Imagine this, people arriving early for church. On Sunday mornings, they don't just have backup alarms, they set backups for their backup. They arrange their schedules to make sure that they don't miss gathering for worship. Throughout the week, they talk about what happened on the previous Sunday as excitement builds for the church service that week. There were all-day talk shows on the radio devoted to reviewing last week's service and breaking down the next one. There's even a TV show called Church Center that runs highlight clips of church activities that have happened across the nation that day. When Sunday comes, the members start loading up their trucks, their SUVs, their sedans hours before the service starts. Hurry, Dad says frantically, we're behind again. It's 6 a.m., says Mom. The church doesn't start for five hours. Well, last time we left at this time, we had to park three miles from the sanctuary and sit in the nosebleed seats. Someday I really want to sit on the front row. But you have to camp out on the church lawn to have any chance at that. The roads are congested on the way to church, no matter how early you leave. At church, there are vehicles parked as far as the eye can see, folks out on the lawn tailgating. Some have elaborate spreads prepared, breaking out portable grills and lawn chairs in the church parking lot. Some have television monitors and satellite dishes so they can catch updates from other worship services while they wait for their own. It's nice weather today, not that that really matters. Even in the dead of winter, they'll be out here in the same numbers. The masses begin filling into the sanctuary, cheering with great passion and excitement. Once the service starts, the people are all on their feet. Not that they ever actually sit down. And of course, there's that bunch of young guys sitting on the front row, and they've probably been here since Friday night. They have no shirts, and and each one has a letter on his chest, and together they spell, Get Your Tithe On. Apparently, the rumor has gotten out that the pastor is indeed going to teach on biblical stewardship and worshiping God with our money. Everyone's pumped for the giving sermon, and it's one of the highlights of the year. After several hours, people start looking at their watches, and everyone is thinking the same thing. Man, I sure do hope this sermon goes into overtime. What would it be like if worship at church was half as intense as our worship in college football stadiums every Saturday during the fall. It's kind of funny to think about. We're going into this, we're going through this series, God's at War. And if you haven't been here with us the last few weeks, God's at War is based off a book by Kyle Eidelman, teaching pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And the whole premise, the whole concept is to do some self-examining in our own lives. To take a look at how the Lord God has a strong desire, has a jealous and intense zealousness for wanting to be the one and only love of your life, sitting on the throne of your heart as your Lord and Savior. But there's a battlefield in your heart because there are gods everywhere all over our culture, all throughout our world that are fighting for your attention, fighting for your devotion, fighting for your love. Another way of saying it would be we all struggle with modern-day idolatry. God gave us the first two commandments out of the ten that he gave Moses. It's worship the Lord your God. 
Don't worship any other God but the Lord your God. And, and don't make for yourself an idol. The very first two commandments. Why? Because he knew our hearts were going to be distracted by everything else the world throws at us. And God says, I jealously want to be your one and only love. And so throughout this series, we're taking time to look at the different gods that are fighting for your soul. They might be gods out there fighting for you that you're not even aware of. Last week, we came into a temple. It was called the Temple of Power. And in that temple, we find the gods of money and success and achievement and, and future planning and all these things that, that kind of, that for some of us anyway, they're good things. But sometimes they become things that we begin to worship in and of themselves. We begin to worship money rather than using it as a tool in our life. We begin to worship achievement and success as if that's what gives me value. We begin to worship our future plans as if we're in control and that our plans are all about us. While the Lord God's saying, these things were meant to just be blessings for you. And achievement and, and money and these things are good. But they're not God. And if you'll just trust me, I'll provide you with all the value you need in your life. If you'll depend on me, I'll provide you with the, the, the means you need, the tools you need to support your family. If you trust me and focus your future plans on me and bringing me glory and building my kingdom, you will be successful. And today... We're going to take a look at a different temple. We're going to look at a different temple that has a different set of gods. And maybe if last week's gods weren't a big deal to you, maybe you, you don't struggle with worshiping money because you ain't, you ain't got none. Maybe, maybe you don't worry about worshiping achievement and success. Maybe that's not been a problem for you. But I'm pretty sure that today's temple is going to house some gods for you that maybe have risen a little bit too big in your life, that might be winning some battles for your heart. There's a story in 2 Samuel, the Bible, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I just want to kind of summarize it for you and tell you. It's a story that we all know is the story of, of David and Bathsheba. In this story, we find a situation where King David, who is described in other places in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, King David is at home in his palace. All the rest of the men in the city, of all the men of Israel, were out fighting a war. David had sent them out. They were in another town pretty far away fighting a war. David was in town. Well, it says in the cool of the evening, in the, in the late afternoon, David went up on top of the palace. And he began walking around. Now, I want to set the scene up for you and what happens. You see, it was... It would have been common knowledge to know that they had, in their culture, up on their rooftops, they would have had places where they would have bathed because the tubs would have been up there. It would have been private because the, all the buildings were fairly low. No one would have been able to see down except for maybe someone from the palace who was up high. But they had, their, they had these basins up there where the water would be. The water could be warm so that then they could come up and bathe. Well, everyone would have known this. David goes for a walk on top of the palace. And that's when he notices bathing on one of the nearby homes down below him, a, a woman. This woman was very nice looking. This woman was beautiful. Now, 
I think we might could take a couple of leaps that Scripture doesn't specifically say here. My guess is, and I don't know this for sure, but my guess is that this wasn't the first time David had taken a walk on his roof. My guess is also that David knew that this time of day there would be women out bathing on top of their roof. David took a walk. He saw this woman and he wanted to know more about her. I don't know how many times he had seen her before he finally decided he wanted to pursue this. But he sent for one of his servants and said, I want you to find out who this woman is. I want you to find out her name. And I want you to send for her and bring her to me. And the servant said, well, this is, this is Bathsheba. And she has a husband, Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah is out fighting in a war for you, my king. Bring her to me. So the servant brings David Bathsheba. And David allows his lust to overcome him. He uses his power as king. He sleeps with Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant. David knows that's going to create a problem. So what David does is he hatches a plan. He sends for Uriah the Hittite from the front where the battle is taking place and calls him back to the capital city. So Uriah comes back and, and, he, and he meets with David. And David says, Uriah, give me a report on the war. How are things going? And Uriah gives him a report. And then David says, why don't you just, before going back, why don't you take a night, get some rest, go, watch your feet, go wash your feet, and go, go spend a night in your home. He's hoping that this will cover for his mistake as Uriah is with his wife. Uriah refuses. Uriah does not go to his home. He, in fact, just goes down and he begins... He, he, sleeps with the king's servants that night outside the palace. Okay, David says, plan B. He brings Uriah back, says, Uriah, don't go back yet. Come back and spend another day with me. That day, David provides him with all kinds of food and drink, gets him drunk, thinking that now, in his inebriation, he will go be with his wife, but he still doesn't do it. So David writes out a message to the commander of his army seals it, gives it to Uriah and says, I'd like for you to take this to back out to the front, give this to the commander. In this note, it says to Joab, his commander, says, I want you to put Uriah at the front where the fiercest fighting is. And when the fighting is taking place, I want you to pull the rest of your men back so that Uriah is struck down and killed. So that's exactly what happens. Uriah goes up, takes the note back. Uriah is delivering his own death warrant to his general. By the hands of the man who slept with his wife, delivers it to the general. The general does what's commanded. They send word back to David. Uriah the Hittite is dead. After the time of mourning, David takes in Bathsheba as his own wife. She delivers the son that is now David's. Sometime not too much later, and, and, and by the way, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel ends with a phrase. It says, what David did displeased the Lord. The next chapter, chapter 12, begins with a story about a man, a prophet named Nathan, that God sends to David. Nathan, I have a message for you to deliver to David. So Nathan goes to David and he says, King, I have a story to share with you. And David says, okay, let me hear it. He says, there was in a town, in a city, a rich man and a poor man. 
The rich man had cattle and sheep and, and goats and all everything. He, he was wealthy beyond all imagination. He had everything he could possibly want. But the poor man, he had this one little ewe lamb, this pet little lamb that he had raised from birth and, and fed it by hand. It was, it was a part of his family. It wasn't just livestock. The rich man had some friends coming in from out of town and wanted to throw a feast. But he didn't want to give up any of his stuff. And so he ordered one of his servants to go and take the ewe lamb from the poor man to sacrifice it, to kill it, and so he could serve it at his banquet. And that's what happened. And David kind of starts getting red in the face as he hears Nathan telling him the story. And he says, who, who could do such a thing? Surely that man must pay for what he's done. He must die. And Nathan, stone-faced, stares at David and says, Your Honor, King, Your Majesty, you are that man. What you did to Uriah the Hittite, you might be able to cover with your power as king, but the Lord God knows what you did, and he knows what's in your heart. And here's what's going to happen. He gave him some things, that, some consequences that were going to happen in his own family. And possibly the most severe one of all was God said, God told Nathan, tell David, I'm not going to take David's life, but I am going to take the baby. The baby can't live. It wasn't soon long after that, the baby gets ill. And David knows what Nathan had said. And David knows what's going to happen. David goes into this time of, of desperate fasting and prayer. And he's on his knees and he, he covers himself with ash and sackcloth. And, and that's just giving himself completely to God in hopes that maybe God will have mercy on him and his newborn son and not take him away. And after seven days of the child being ill, the child dies. When David hears the news of the child dying, David gets up, he cleans himself, he washes his face, and he goes and eats a meal. It's time to move on. See, David came to the realization, through what Nathan had to say to him, he came to the realization that his sin and his lust, his casual and innocent afternoon walks on the roof of the palace, had turned into some pretty horrible things. And I'm wondering at what point in the story David stopped to say, how did I get here? I am anointed by God as king. I've seen all that he can do through me and with me and through these people. I know he's real. He's called me a man after his own heart. and He's provided me with everything. I mean, this is the same David who, who slayed the giant. Goliath, this is the same David who struck down a bear, killed a, killed a lion. I mean, this is the same David who knew that it was mighty and knew that he's the same David that, that had come behind King Saul and was protected from all that as he led the armies of Israel. This man had quite an impressive pedigree under God up to this point. How in the world did he get to this point? And what I want to share with you is this. David, somewhere along the line, had entered the temple of pleasure. 
He had entered the temple of pleasure, and he began bowing down to some of the gods there. The gods that were calling out to him, and they became louder than the Lord God. And I wonder as I think about David's story and what he went through in that moment when he stopped and finally realized a truth from the book of James that he wouldn't have been able to read yet, but we know. I wonder when he stopped and just realized, I have replaced God with another God. And I've turned with, from, away from him. James chapter 1, 13 through 15 says these words, and I believe these were the kind of words that David would have had in his mind as he came to understand what was happening. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. David lived every step of this. And we see it right here in these two chapters in 2 Samuel. Another way of saying it is a verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Proverbs 4.23, that says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Who is the Lord of your heart? David allowed this God of lust to come in and take over his heart, and that was what flowed out. And it, when conceived, became sin, and that sin led to death. And I wonder how many of us, how many of us can say that our heart has the Lord God on the throne as our one and only love, or is there another God in control of your heart right now? You see, the big question I think we need to ask today is this. What is flowing from your heart into your life? What is flowing from your heart into your life? In other words, what God is it that has control of you that is demonstrating itself, that is showing itself every day in the way you walk, in the way you talk, in the way you live, in the decisions you make? What's flowing out of your heart and out into your life? I want us to reflect on that today as we go through this, as we begin looking inside the temple of pleasure. You see, in this temple of pleasure we've, that we have built, we have set up shrines to the God of entertainment, to the God of sex, to the God of, of fun, but with it, we also find some of the most destructive forces that we will ever face in our life. Forces that start off looking really good, but they end up causing nothing but devastation and damage and heartache. And sometimes these gods will not stop until they have literally cost you your entire life. Forces like drugs and alcohol, turning to things like food, and other substances as we're looking for places to be comforted or as an escape 
from real life. I'm wondering if one of the gods sitting on the throne of your heart lives right here today in the temple of pleasure. Today we're going to talk about a few of these gods and take a look at how we might be able to destroy them or at very least to put them back into a place in our life where they belong and where they're healthy so that the Lord God can resume the place in your life that he deserves as the Lord of your life. So let's go into the temple of pleasure. Let's take a look at the first God, the God of entertainment. If you'd like to follow in your bulletin on the outline, please feel free to do that. The first God we're looking at is, is the God of entertainment. And I want you, as we begin talking about this, to imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment that you're a parent out for shopping, and you're out shopping for a present for your child. You've heard him talking in tones of, of awe about the latest gaming console, and you see it at the store, and and, and you begin to think about the, the smile on his face that if you were to get this for him, that would be there. And, and that puts a smile on your face. It's not inexpensive. Not at all. It's actually, to buy this will be somewhat of a sacrifice. But you want the best for your child, right? When you get home and you present this gift there's a joyful shout and a, and a tight hug and a dozen frenzied, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was worth every penny for this moment. And you stop by his room a couple of times and, and you watch him set it up. And then, and then he begins to play it with this utter and complete concentration. And you ask him a question about the game. You want to know. And he says, wait, wait, I can't talk right now. And, and then he seems to completely forget that you're there. Later on, you ask him to go out to dinner with the rest of the family. We're all getting ready to go out. But, but he begs. Otherwise, one, he only wants to stay and play with his new game. You know, come on, please, please, please let me stay. I'm, I'm so into this right now. Just let me stay and play with this new game. And then, and, then, and then you look up, and maybe a few days later, and he's standing beside your chair as you're watching TV, and he starts to tell you about, about some of the add-on games that his friends have. And how much better the version of the game that they have is better than yours or his. It seems that if you don't, it seems like you don't get to see him as much as before. And to be honest, as he keeps asking for more and more stuff to add to the system, he just doesn't seem to be as happy and content as he was before you bought the game. And then you begin to wonder how did this nice gift? goes so wrong and then you realize it happened because the gift became more important than the giver the beauty was not so much in the thing itself at first but in the love that brought the gift in the first place the gift was not wrong or evil but but somehow when the gift becomes more important than the giver it goes from being a great gift to being idolatry. Augustine referred to these gods as disordered loves. And I wonder how many times in our lives we've experienced disordered loves, gifts from God that were intended to be pleasure 
they became gods, then all of a sudden they consumed all of our joy and our contentment. And now suddenly there's something that's destructive and hurting us. I don't know, maybe you've seen, uh, if you're on the computer a good bit, uh, on Facebook or YouTube, you've seen the video of the kid whose dad has taken all of his video games and put them out in the lawn and has the riding lawnmower cranked up and ready to run over them. Have you seen this video? Don't, if you do, mute the sound because the kid's not, he's a potty mouth. But, um, but the video's really, it's really a funny situation because, and, and it's kind of sad too. Because what's happening is the kid comes into his room. The video starts with his brother. His brother apparently really loved him. He's filming all of this. His, bro- he co- his brother's filming him. He comes to his room and sees all of his video games are gone. And he begins, where's the video game? Dad took, I think Dad took them. And he runs out of the house, and Dad's on his riding lawnmower, when the, and he cranks the mower up in this big pile. I mean, it had to have been a couple of thousand dollars worth of video games sitting on the lawn out there. And the, and the son's just screaming, no, Dad, no. And his dad says, I'm sick of this becoming all your life is about. You care about these more than anything or anyone else, and I'm just sick of it. And the dad goes forward, and he plows over the video games and just shreds them. And the kid... I mean, I've, it looked like someone literally had reached into the chest and pulled his heart out. And the kid goes down, and he's just screaming. And, and, and while it's kind of funny on one hand, I think it creates a picture that maybe we can all relate to somewhere, somehow. There's something in our life, and we may not act that way outwardly, but that has become so important to us that we can't imagine losing it. That has become such a God in our heart and our life that the thought of it being taken away would lead us to rage. The thought of it would lead us to, to, to bring us to tears, would bring us to our knees. I'm wondering what that might be for you. You see, I want to make sure we understand today that There's nothing wrong with pleasure and entertainment. God gave us good things to enjoy and to experience. He wants us to enjoy the pleasures of life. Entertainment is not a sin, and entertainment is not bad. But has entertainment become a God in your life? Sports, television, music, movies... Do you find yourself rearranging other areas of your life around entertainment? Do you find yourself giving do you find yourself giving yourself more time to being entertained than you do to your family? Do you find that the outcome of the football game either makes or breaks how you feel the rest of the weekend? That's just an example. You see, I think it's important To understand when we come into the temple of pleasure and we see the God of entertainment, then we understand that it was a gift from God and it was meant to be good. Entertainment is good, but it is not God. And we must understand that in the context of entertainment and, and appreciating and enjoying entertainment in our life, that when it starts to replace the Lord God on the throne of our heart and starts to push him aside and that becomes our focus and that's what gets our attention and our time, then we have disordered loves. We have begun to put things on the throne of our heart that are not the Lord God. 
And those things do great damage when we put them there because that's not where they were ever meant to be. There's another God that we find when we come into the temple of pleasure. It's the God of sex. Now I want to understand, I want us to understand what we're talking about here. I'm not talking about sex in the context of our relationships, our marriage relationships today. I'm talking about sex in the context of how it's used in our culture. I'm talking about it in the context of, of how it plays itself out in terms of lust, like what happened with David. Or maybe even a bigger way in our society today as we talk about pornography. And I know this is an uncomfortable topic, but it's real. And it's something we've got to talk about. It's something we can't ignore because it's a very real God in many people's lives. And it's a very real God in many of our lives in this room. I have no doubt about it. You see, the fact that internet pornography has become a multi-billion dollar industry means that huge numbers of people are turning to the God of sex for their own personal pleasure. One of the biggest problems with using God's gift of sexual pleasure in this way is that it completely removes love and intimacy from the equation. It makes sex into being more about me and satisfying my own desires than about the intimacy of a relationship with someone I've committed my life to. And I think we need to understand where lust and pornography and using sex for our own pleasure with disregard to anyone else can be a very destructive force. A good friend of mine, he's a bit older than me, was a few years back married and he had two kids. He was a full-time youth pastor. His marriage had some serious problems and he was seeking pleasure and, and affirmation from other places outside of that marriage because he didn't feel he was getting what he needed inside of it. And he began to seek out, at first, internet pornography. And his desire grew as he began to do this. And, and that desire grew from just looking at pornography to actually contacting people on social media with some of the same interests. And they began sending pictures. And his desire to grew into seeking real people out. And this grew into actually meeting people and hooking up for casual sex on the side. One night, his secret world shattered. He was talking to a woman and he was sending some pictures. And the next day, sitting in his home office, Dozens of police officers surrounded his home and raided his house. They arrested him and they took his computer and his evidence. You see, the girl that he had talked with the night before was only 16 years old and he didn't know it. Her parents found out and they called the police. My friend spent two years in jail. He lost his family, he lost his career in ministry. He lost most of his friends, and I can't tell you how many times in sitting with him, I've heard him asked, 
I have no idea how it got to this point. I know his belief and his faith in God is real. I know that. I have no doubt about it. I have no doubt that his repentance today is sincere. He didn't get there because he was any different than the rest of us. He had sin in his heart just like the rest of us, but he allowed the God of sex and pleasure to become a God that sat on the heart of his life, and it destroyed everything. He will never again, no matter how many years he lives, he will receive God's grace completely, but his life will never be the same. Those consequences don't go away. Listen, sex is good, but sex is not God. If sex, lust, pornography, if these things are sitting on the throne of your life right now, please understand that they are not God. And they will destroy you. There's one more guide I want to talk about today in the temple of pleasure. This guide is a little bit more general and encompassing several things. I just I didn't know what else to call it beside the God of fun. The God of fun. It's a very general God. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. For some of us, this God takes the form of drugs and alcohol. For others, this God is indulging in food and other substances for comfort or to escape the pain of real life. What each of us calls fun is different. Like all the other gods, most fun isn't bad in and of itself. But it becomes a serious problem when our quest for fun begins to do damage in our own lives or to those around us. When our quest for fun begins to overshadow our desire to bring glory to God, we must acknowledge that maybe fun has become a God that has taken the place of the Lord God in our lives. Sammy was a good-looking young boy who lived in the Deep South. His summer days were filled with times of walking through the woods, playing with friends and fishing in the pond down by the dirt road. Fishing was by far his favorite thing to do, and just about every day during his summer vacation, he would dig up some worms and head off, pole in hand, for a day of fishing. This steamy hot day was like most others during Sammy's summer break. Waking early, he could hear the pond calling him to come fish. Sammy quietly walked out of the front door, grabbing his pitchfork and worm pail by, from, the, from the porch. He walked into the woods to search for bait. He turned over old stumps and dug, dug under leaves, hoping to find worms. And under one old stump, he hit the jackpot. The ground was writhing with worms, and in two minutes, he had all the bait he needed. And in 15 minutes, he was at the pond. Reaching into the bait bucket, Sammy pulled out a big worm, and he double-hooked it as he tossed it into the water. He noticed a stinging sensation in his hand, but filled with excitement of the moment, he paid no attention to it. And within 30 seconds, Sammy had a strike and pulled in a nice catfish. Wow, he thought a fish in the first minute. This is unbelievable. He put the catch on his stringer, and he hurried to rebate his hook, and he tried his luck again. Once again, he did feel that stinging sensation in his hand as he threw his hook into the pond, and he didn't have time to worry about it, though. Within just a few seconds, he had another huge fish, and he, and he fumbled the next time he baited his hook, 
His hand felt numb and stiff, but Sammy was too excited about catching another fish to give it much thought. At the end of only an hour of fishing, Sammy had caught eight large fish. This was definitely his best fishing day ever. He was so proud of his accomplishment that even though there was plenty of day left to fish, he threw the heavy stringer of fish over his shoulder and he dashed down the dirt road home to show off his catch to his mom and dad. The local sheriff happened to drive up along Sammy and started to congratulate him on his catch of fish. With a smile and a victory whoop, Sammy held up the stringer. The sheriff gasped. He parked the car and he strode over to Sammy. His eyes hadn't deceived him. Sammy's arms were really red and swollen to about twice their normal size. Exactly where have you been and what bait did you use to catch those fish? The sheriff asked Sammy, already guessing the answer. Oh, I found some special bait under an old stump, Sammy boasted. These worms really wiggle good. Handing the bait bucket up for inspection. After a close look at the worms, the sheriff went into fast forward. Securing the bucket in his trunk, he then scooped Sammy and a stringer of fish into the back seat of his patrol car. Spinning a U-turn on the gravel road, he sped off to the hospital. But by the time he arrived, Sammy was already dead. What the sheriff had discovered was that Sammy had been fishing with baby rattlesnakes. You see, it's one thing to have fun. And we all want to have fun. And there's nothing wrong with having fun and enjoying life. But the question is whether or not fun has become all that you're living for. You see, there are some things in this life that are dangerous. And when we start playing with them, they seem like fun at first. They feel a lot like pleasure. But they're doing great damage. And for some of us, by the time we realize the damage that's being done by fun, it's too late. The poison's already in our system. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about specifics like drugs and alcohol or, or overeating in different areas where we might go seek out fun in our lives with things that at first can seem innocent, just a glass or two, just you know, a double helping this time. But how long is it before we're sitting there asking, this is killing me. How did I get to this point? We've got to remember that fun is good, but fun is not God. And when we allow fun, when we allow whatever your definition of fun is, to take the place of the Lord God on the throne of our heart, rather than allowing whatever it is we consider to be fun to be things that we can use to bring him glory through our lives, when that starts to happen, it starts to kill us slowly from the inside out. So back to my original question. 
as we examine these various gods in the temple of pleasure. What is flowing from your heart into your life? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not, even, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving, for of this you can be sure. No immoral or impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I wonder what a hint of sexual immorality looks like for me and for you. I wonder what does a hint of impurity look like? What about a hint of obscenity and coarse joking going on in your life? What does that look like? These are things, did you hear it, that make you an idolater, that make me an idolater. When you hear about any form of sexual, when you allow any form of sexual immorality, impurity, sexual joking, and greed, these are clear evidence that something that started off as pleasure has now become a God in your life. These are tough words that the Apostle Paul uses here, especially if it describes you. It says, you have no place in the kingdom if this describes you. Why? Why so harsh? The answer is this. Either the Lord God is the Lord of your life or something else is. And there's no in-between. And there's no sharing. Matthew 7, 16 through 20, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The scripture isn't talking about those of us, all of us, who make mistakes by doing things that you're ashamed of. You know what? We all make mistakes. We all sin. And we've all shown that we have a sinful heart. The question really is this. It's whether or not you're comfortable and happy living in that sin. See, Jesus isn't asking if you're perfect. He already knows you're not. What he wants to know is if you're ready to deal with that sin and remove the gods that caused it from your life so you can focus on him and him alone. Because of Nathan the prophet, David stepped back and he realized the sin he committed was against God and was against everyone around him too. He realized it was a reflection of his heart. He realized that his lust and his desire for sexual pleasure had become a God that took the place of the Lord God in his life. He heard God's rebuke and he repented of it. He did something about it. That is why David is considered to be a man after God's own heart. Elijah, standing before the people of Israel 
on Mount Carmel, as they were all worshiping Baal and the Asherah poles, he wanted to bring God back in front of those people, and he asked them this question. Elijah went before them and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people then at that moment said nothing. And the question for you is, if Baal is God, follow him. If Lord is God, follow him. But you must choose. I don't want you to be in a place where you're sitting here while God is calling out to you and saying, choose me. While the rest of the world's fighting for your soul, especially these gods here in the temple of pleasure. He wants you to choose and he wants you to choose him. And if you do, he will transform your life. Today we're going to have an invitation. It's a chance for you to respond. And I'm telling you this, if you turn and put Jesus on the Lord of your heart, you allow him to say, I want you to be in control, God, from this day forward. He will transform the rest of your life into the order it needs to be in. I believe that. If you're ready to make that decision and to make Jesus the Lord of your life, come forward. Talk to me after the service. If it's something that you need to deal with, let's deal with it. I'd love to help you start that process. Let's respond to what we've heard today. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for your words, the, the examples you give us in Scripture, especially your servant David. Not only what he did and how terrible it was, but how he responded and how he turned back to you, how he realized that he had put a God on the throne of his heart that did not belong there. But through your prophet Nathan, he had his eyes open and he saw the disordered loves in his life, and he made a change. God, I pray that there's someone here today who needs to make a change because they now see the disordered love in their life and they want God to be on the throne of their heart the way he deserves. God, move us in that way today in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing this simple prayer?